awesome. Let's pray with Laura as she um, brings us the word today. Lord God, again, I, um, I just want to reiterate what Pearl shared this morning, that your word is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow. Lord, your Holy Spirit discerns our hearts. Lord, and even when we don't know what's going on, you do. Lord, and so I thank you that um, this morning that you're present with us, and I thank you for this, the gift of Laura and um, the thought that she just put in to bring us uh, your word today, and pray that you would bless her. And just, yeah, Lord, may whatever is spoken, um, may your Holy Spirit just do a work in us, and so something that, um, that grows. Amen. All right, I'm going to quickly duck and get my water. So while I do that, can you please find on in your, you know, actual paper copy Bibles or your devices, um, Galatians chapter 3, and we're starting with verse 10. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, we're going all the way up to chapter 4, verse 11, I think. So Galatians 3, 10, all the way to, oh, thanks, Ross. Um, the, the one on the front. We're not going to get to the, to the actual passage itself just yet. Um, so we've been looking at Galatians for a little bit now, but just in case, um, just a little bit of context first. Um, I also find, at least for me, that context, the context of when something is written or to who it's written really helps me to um, understand what is actually being said. So um, in terms of Galatians, so we have a group of believers um, that Paul helped to convert on his first uh, missionary trip. And Galatians is a letter. Um, it's written in response to one of, or if not, the first real controversies that actually um, was an issue um, in the early church. Um, and that was the relationship between the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles. Um, and for him, it really wasn't just a, a little issue. Um, it had the potential to cause really serious division. It was becoming a really worrying stumbling block for some of the those new believers. And it was at best muddying the waters, or at worst it was completely moving away from the actual heart of the gospel message. Um, and when you read Galatians, Paul's tone, it's pretty clear, um, it shows just how important it was to him that um, people embrace this idea of unity in Christ no matter what their distinctions or the differences were. Um, in this case, it was sort of racial distinctions, but we know that there are many. Um, in fact, it was interesting when I was reading it said that Paul was so passionate um, on the subject and got so um, yeah, worked up about it that um, at the end of Galatians, there's something in the text that suggests that he basically took the the pen or, you know, the quill or whatever they were writing with, took it out of the scribe's hand and continued writing it himself. He was just that um, invested in it, I guess. And he really didn't mince his words. So he went so far as to call the Galatians um, deserters of Christ and to say that the people who were responsible for preaching 
the kind of perverted version of the gospel and leading people away should be under God's curse. So not, you know, not a tiny issue, quite a serious one. Um, and I'll come back to the specific issue a little bit later, but I just wanted to make a tiny little relevant feature, I think. Um, so there's a song that I have listened to on and off for a really long time called Who Am I? And it's by Casting Crowns. I don't know if you know it. Um, but in it, there's this really quite small section, um, and it strikes me every time I listen to it. Um, and conveniently, I think it sums up a lot of um, the reflections I had um, reading this particular passage in Galatians. Um, and I also think it kind of gets to the heart of what Paul was trying so desperately to communicate. Um, so this is the line. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. And not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. So to say that again, because sometimes it takes a little bit to process. So not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Um, so when I hear that one, I really can't help but think of how radical the gospel is. And I don't necessarily think we always think of the gospel as radical, but it really is. Um, how beautiful and liberating and overwhelming is the message of the gospel to those with ears and hearts to actually hear it. And to others, it's actually quite offensive and it's really disruptive, it's absurd, um, and it just upends everything, it flips it on its head. Um, so what am I going to be try, trying to highlight today? Um, well, the world says that who you are and what you've done determines what you deserve. Um, but Christ, our Lord and Saviour, says who I am and what I have done determines who you are and your inheritance. So not who we are and what we've done, but who Christ is and what he's done. And that determines our actual identity and what we inherit. Um, so now I'll actually read the passage with some of that context. So if you want to follow along with me, I'm starting from uh, Galatians chapter 3, um, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seed, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. 
but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly, oh, sorry, would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this day, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for if you are all one in, sorry, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns, owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So long passage, and at first I admit it took a lot to try and get my head around it. Some long sentences and concepts that kind of seem all twisted up, but um, yeah, able to process it in the end. Um, does anything stand out? to you at all when you're listening. Just curious. Is anything that stood out when you're listening to that? Richard said, there is one. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one sent by God to save us, only one, and that is as you know, Jesus. Anything else? <laughs> All right. So, um, in the time that Paul was writing to the Galatians, there was a growing divide between the Jewish and the Gentile converts. On the one hand, there were people like Paul, 
who were raised and educated in Jewish faith and steeped in all of the customs and traditions. Um, they would have been circumcised at eight days old, as Abraham and all his descendants were commanded to do. And this was done in order to signify the covenant that was made between God and Abraham. And then on the other hand, there were Gentile, which means non-Jewish, um, converts who had none of this background, knowledge, and tradition, um, and history. Before writing this letter, Paul had learned that a particular um, subset of the people in the Galatian church, known as the Circumcision Party, uh, really catchy, with a state election coming up, the Circumcision Party, vote one. Um, I would not be voting for them. But anyway, um, so the Circumcision Party were using their power uh, to convince the, the Gentile members that true believers needed to follow the entirety of Jewish law in order to be considered right with God. Um, initially I thought, what power did the Jewish converts have? The passage doesn't um, say that they had any necessary official titles or positions that were, you know, made them officially more powerful than the Gentile Christians and, you know, able to dictate things. But if we think about it, could it be said that they might have had the same sort of power that we have when a brand new follower of Jesus walks through the door? We have the power of language. So there's terms that we're really familiar with, um, Advent, repentance, sin, covenant, we, we kind of we get exposed to them and we, we just understand in the end what they mean. And then there are generations. So some of us come from Christian families and homes and maybe that has been the case for one, two, three generations. Um, there are traditions and customs that we're familiar with. So we will have probably heard um, many of the core stories. We've been apprenticed into things like communion and the hymns. Um, and this was one that took me a while to actually understand as a new person, but at Easter time, we say, Christ is risen, and the reply is, risen indeed. And I didn't know that when I was new, and I walked in and I'm like, why are all these people saying these things to each other? What's that? So that those even those kinds of customs um, that we, we know and we have, some of us just have time. We've been doing this walk with Jesus for longer. And some of us have, or many of us have, a level of knowledge, whether it's through official study or through Bible studies at home. It's just personal study. We just, we just have a base of knowledge. And all of these things can sometimes make us seem a bit like experts um, and give us an unofficial authority, particularly to those people who are new to the faith. And it's something that I think we need to be really attentive to. It's something that can be wielded with wisdom and with care and used to disciple and nurture and to guide new Christians. But it can also be treated with ignorance or used with the wrong intentions um, and sometimes with really disastrous consequences. And I think Paul could see um, how it was being used and it was one thing that really um, concerned him. I mean, you and I, we know that Part of what is so beautiful about the gospel is the way that it answers a question everyone asks. Who am I? Whether you are full of self-confidence or arrogance or self-doubt or self-loathing, um, whether you are born with servants or you are born into a life of servitude, 
whether you have more wealth and power than many of the small countries in our world, or you have so very little that the word dirt is used to describe just how poor you are. The Gospel says it doesn't matter. Who we are, or who we were, apart from Jesus is really clear. Under God's wrath, outcast, slave to sin, slaves to those who by nature are not God, as Paul said. No one in and of themselves is deserving, and we're all united and made equal in that we are sinners and we all fall short. One of the dangers in the message that some of the Galatian, uh, those in the Galatian church were preaching was that it completely deviated from the, the core gospel truth. It said that what mattered was what you did. It said that to be considered righteous, to be made right with God, to be justified, to be worthy in his sight, you had to do certain things. You had to observe certain practices. You had to uphold and obey the entirety of Jewish law. And your adherence to these laws was what your standing with God and what your salvation depended on. And if you read the letter, you can you can hear that Paul was genuinely distressed that people were being led down this path of thinking. Paul was once someone who zealously obeyed and upheld and defended Jewish law. Then he personally encountered and was converted by the risen Jesus and he came to understand the proper place and purpose of the law. So in Galatians 3.19 it says, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. And 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law, unfortunately, it doesn't do away with the problem of sin. So the law highlights sin. It separates or shows us or tells us what is right and what is wrong but it doesn't touch here. It doesn't do away with the internal sickness and the heart attitude from which sin originates. It has no power to do that at all. And so we have the verse, um, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So we know that none of us is able to keep God's commands wholly and completely. And I think more importantly, the law was never actually God's solution for sin in the first place. It was only meant to be, as the passage says, a guardian to hold us in custody um, until Abraham's seed came to redeem us. And here, in the Galatian church, Paul is horrified to find that there are people promoting the law and customs far above its intended place and pointing to the law as the way to salvation, as if to say the laws were able to do away with God's real redemption plan, a plan that wasn't dependent on us and a plan that was set in motion well before the Mosaic laws were even given. The laws came 430 years after God's original covenant with Abraham. 
and it's important to understand this whole idea of covenant. So can someone tell me the difference between a covenant and a contract? Covenant, contract, what's the difference? Oh, Keith. Uh, the contract is on a equal level by the covenant. that you actually agree to it. So God sets the standards and then you sign up to where you agree to that. You have a covenant. The one is, uh, uh, the other one is the contract is on usually on equal terms. Okay, so there's some level of like equality in terms of the parties that are making the contract versus covenant. Yes? Okay. Covenant contract. Covenant contract. Is there, is there, is it uh, a difference of like um, time period? So I don't know, but maybe, maybe a contract has an end date, whereas covenant does it? Okay. Oh, did you want to say something or? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a contract like it's all on both parties are equal in terms of responsibilities. Whereas I think covenant, like the covenant is God, is a fulfillment of the covenant is based on his faithfulness. Not necessarily on the other party. Yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there. Michelle? <laughs> we're getting there. Come on guys. Yeah, Michelle. Yep. So covenant, promise, contract. Okay. So here's the the way that I understood it. So with a contract, if one of the agreeing parties um, does something that violates the contract, it's broken. Okay. It's considered broken. So the whole contract just torn up, thrown out. So basically, when you sign a contract, whether it's to buy a house or to whatever. You agree to uphold, so both parties agree to uphold their ends of the, the deal as long as the other party also holds up their end of the deal. With a covenant, both parties agree to uphold their ends regardless of whether the other party keeps their part of the covenant. So a violation of a covenant by one party doesn't matter as far as the other party's responsibility to continue to do what they agreed to do. So God's promise, God's covenant. We read, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken. So there you go, Michelle. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. We keep reading. Um, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant established by God and do away with the promise. But if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So we keep hearing that word promise. And thankfully, the agreement with God is a covenant because it doesn't rely on us to uphold our end of the bargain because we're not always very good at that. Um, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? So does the law clash with the covenant in any way? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that could impart life, 
then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus, might be given to those who believe. So what does all this stuff mean? Well, it kind of highlights the deception that Paul is trying so desperately to correct in his letter. Our salvation, and hopefully we know this, our salvation never depended on our ability to uphold all of the laws and God's commands. If it did, we would be in a lot of trouble and our inheritance would be... Okay. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham, a promise. And if you're a fan of Bluey and that episode about promises, not a Bluey kind of promise where you just kind of, if you feel like it, you do it, or you you know, you know, use it to leverage other people and it's manipulative. It's not that. It's not a Bluey kind of promise. It is a God covenant kind of promise, a promise that isn't dependent on us and whether we break our end of the deal or not, a promise that endures despite our inability, actually. A promise that was made knowing full well of our inability and completely and wholly accounting for it as well. That's why it was a covenant and not a contract. The heart of the gospel is, and I come back to the lyrics, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done, and not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. So who we are and what we've done amount pretty much to eternal separation and death. But we aren't in a contract with God. We are, through Jesus, we come under the covenant that he made with Abraham. He will keep his ends of the, at the end of the arrangement, irrespective of who we are, irrespective of what we've done or what we will do. Okay, it's about what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So it said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So who are we because of Christ and what he has done? We are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so there is neither Jew nor Gentile, those distinctions don't matter, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one according to Christ. Not that they don't exist anymore, it's that they don't have any level of importance in terms of dividing us. We are all united as a body under Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, in our case the law, until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit he calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, 
God has made you also an heir. The Paul's great sorrow was that some of the church of Galatia were being deceived into believing a gospel that was centered on works and centered on adherence to the law, which we know is no gospel at all. Those who were redeemed from the custody of the law through grace and faith were being pulled back into it and trapped all over again, falling back into being slaves. And all I would say is, let us not do the same. And let us not put stumbling blocks in front of others as well that take them away from the heart of the gospel. That's it.